Hey, everybody, if you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical, digital, or service products. Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. If you're going to San Francisco or Seattle, you should come to our live shows. That's right. Well done, Chuck. We are still selling tickets to our live shows on January 24th and 26th. On January 24th in Seattle at the Paramount Theater and on January 26th in San Francisco at Sydney Goldstein Theater, tickets are still available to come see us. Hats off to Portland for selling out our show at Revolution Hall already. And sorry to everybody who got shut out. That's right. So where can they get tickets? At our website, right? StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Yeah, or Linktree slash SYSK. We'll see everybody then. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck and Jerry's here, too. The three amigos, the trois musketeers, the trace, leches, all that. Back together again in a brand new year, 2024. That's right. Uh, in, in our time, this is our first recording after our uh, increasingly long Christmas break, which is just wonderful. Yeah, I feel like Jerry sucked us in that first week quite a bit. It was like a quasi-work <laughs> week that we weren't supposed to have, which I'm still a little mad about. Yeah, but not recording. Uh, so it's a nice long break, but I always feel like we have to kick, or at least I have to kick the rust off a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I think we're going to do great, though, because it doesn't feel rusty. I'm sure we'll be rusty, but it doesn't feel like we're going to be. Yeah. Oh, can I say a quick thing, too? Yeah. Uh, this is something that it didn't occur to me until we were on the break. Like, we always like to thank people around the holidays for support and stuff. But uh, I think we should specifically thank people who operate as our back getters and our quasi quality control people. Because all the time we're, we get letters from people that say like uh, or emails that say like, hey, you misspelled this word in the podcast release or oh, this yeah, one sure. came out twice or mm-hmm. this ad is really offensive. So maybe you guys want to double check that. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. Like it just feels good. People are always really kind and, and alert us to things that we should be paying attention to because sometimes things slip through. And I just want to say thanks for everyone looking out for us. Man. When did that occur to you? How long have you been hanging on to that one? Not, I mean, it was over the break when I think we got a couple of things about either an ad or something. And I was like, you know what? 
we should thank people for for getting our back and letting us alerting us to stuff. So that's what triggered it. Some emails. You didn't just like sit bowl upright in the middle of the night no. and think, oh God. <laughs> no. Well, that was nice well, of you, Chuck. Yeah. I agree I know with you feel that the policy. Same way. Yeah, we'll start adopting that at the end of the year, the holidays or something like that. How about that? Nope. That's the only time we'll ever do it. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that too. Um, so we're talking today about something I've been avoiding for a while. I started to um, look into this and, mm -hmm. and start researching it and I was going to suggest it a couple of years ago. And I was like, this is one of the bleakest things that's ever happened outside of war in in history. It's up there for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really sucks you in in the grimmest possible way when you have to like really dive in and research because we're talking about Jonestown. And for anybody who's even Everyone is at least passingly familiar with the word Jonestown, the name Jonestown. Yeah. Or you might have heard, you know, the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, like you've really bought into something. You might even be brainwashed. That came out of Jonestown, um, true or not. And when you, when you talk about it, though, it's not something you can talk about flipply. It's not something you can just kind of breeze through. Like you really have to get in there and understand what the heck was going on because it's such a bizarre, horrible um, event yeah. that, that, um, it just really kind of sucks you in. And when you get in there, it really, it's grim. It's a grim, it was a grim research e event for me. Yeah. I mean, it's so grim that a, a band named themselves after it, it with a pithy pun attached. Yeah. One of the great band names of all time, Brian Jonestown Massacre. Oh, do you think that is? Oh yeah. I think it's a great I name. have a hard time with pun band names, especially the sort of beginning, middle, end ones. Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on the Kathleen Turner Overdrive. It's clever, mm -hmm. but it's one of those ones you hear once and you're like, that's funny. I think the difference between those two bands, though, is the Brian Jonestown Massacre actually like was awesome. hardcore musicians. Yeah, they were good. That have like a bleak enough outlook that they could take that that name and it's not just a, a like a elbow you in the ribs kind of joke. Yeah, and Brian Jones like another classic musician whereas Kathleen Turner, I love Kathleen Turner but I don't know. It just seemed a little extra pity. She can't even play the spoons. <laughs> oh, are you kidding? She's a great spooner. Um not only did Brian Jones sound massacre name themselves that they also have a, a song called The Ballad of Jim Jones. Have you heard that oh, one? Oh, no. It's it's they got harmonica. It's real kind of Bob Dylan-y. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's really something. It's something to go check out. I don't know if everybody's going to like them. Yeah. But uh, some people probably will. Yeah. And we should also point out this is a, you know, this is the stuff you should know 45-ish minute overview. Like this could be way, way longer and multi-episodes long if we really got into all the sort of ups and downs of Jim Jones through his uh, odd life. Yeah, that's a good idea. I wonder if anyone's ever done a multi-part oh, podcast sure. on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought you were being serious. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, yeah, it, but I'm glad you said that because it is true. Like, there's a lot, a lot about this, and we'll try to get everything we talk about right, though, right? That's right, and uh, thanks to the Grabster for the help on this one. Yeah, for sure. Way to go, Grabster. Um, and we should probably say just, just a I don't even know if we need to give an overview of what happened. We could probably just jump in and start and talk about Jim Jones, the guy at the center of this whole thing, right? Well, I think people get mad when we do that, assuming that people know. Uh, okay. So maybe just the quickest of uh, spoilers is that on November 18th, 1978, 
Uh, more than 900 people died in Guyana uh, at the at the hands of a sadistic cult leader named Jim Jones. And now we can start. Right. Well, the big twist to all that is, is he didn't personally kill them physically. He used his power to right. um, get them to kill themselves. It's as, it's as weird and twisted as that. So Jim Jones is the kind of person, or he was the kind of person who could actually make something like that happen. He was a very, very rare individual. I've seen him yeah. um, uh, diagnosed retroactively as psychopathic, and then I think his personality disorders got a little more nuanced. I've seen much more recently um, that he was a malignant narcissist. There was something wrong with that guy. Something was wrong with Jim Jones from start to finish, but it seems to have gotten way, way worse over time. But one thing that he showed a real penchant for early on in life was preaching, not religion. He was not, it turns out, a religious person. He doesn't seem to have believed in much of any of the stuff he was preaching. But preaching was his way of like funneling attention, adoration, money, importance to himself he figured out very early on yeah he he was on record that he was not so into religion even though he was tied to the various churches over the years uh including the one he started the people's temple uh mm -hmm. which we'll talk about in greater detail later uh but one thing he was which is i didn't know a, a ton about the guy sort of pre uh jonestown and i was surprised to learn that he was a um, sort of a, a socialist slash communist, mm -hmm. uh, anti-segregationist who actually did a lot of, you know, uh, I, I hate to characterize it as good work, but it was good work because it's, you know, it's hard. He was such an awful human, uh, but he he led a lot of desegregationist causes mm -hmm. in Indiana very successfully for a number of years. I saw someone on Reddit say that had he died on the way to California, we would remember him today as one of the early civil rights leaders. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It is true. And I, I get what you're saying, your reticence to like praise him in any way, shape or form. But yeah. he definitely did walk the walk like he fought for integration at a time when white people were not doing that. Jim Jones is white, we should say. Uh, but he mostly learned that he um, was best preaching generally toward black congregants. Mm -hmm. um, and that that kind of just drove his desire to um, to integrate even further. So much so that as he got a little more power, one of the first things he did was become the um, kind of the civil rights czar for Indianapolis. And he actually, it wasn't like just a, a label that he went around and, and introduced himself as. He went to work and started integrating places and, like, penalizing places that hadn't integrated yet in Indianapolis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, initially, he was a uh, he was involved with the Methodist Church. Uh, he was involved with them even though they were not necessarily anti-segregationist, did not necessarily want their congregations to be mm -hmm. of mixed race. Uh, but they were apparently supportive of his uh, sort of socialist, communist leanings. And this was in the very early 1950s. Uh, and we should point out he was married by this point. He got married in 1949 to a woman named Marceline Baldwin, mm -hmm. uh, who was a hospital orderly and uh, love bombed her, apparently. 
And a couple of years later, they moved to Indianapolis where that's when he got involved with the Methodist and, you know, started sort of spreading his anti-segregationist word. Yeah. Um, so after, I don't know what happened with the Methodists, but eventually they got sick of him and um, pushed him out of the church. And he moved over to um, evangelicalism. Yeah. What he called apostolic socialism. Because one of the things about him, not only did he figure out that preaching was a way to like attract people, uh, he figured out that that religion was a way, it was like a, a Trojan horse to get people to um, start thinking about socialism. Right. Because there's so many like um, parallels between, you know, I, so ideal socialism and mm-hmm. um, Christian teaching, ideal Christian teaching, I should say, that um, like it's it's pretty easy to get people who are already predisposed toward following Jesus and his Christian teachings to start thinking about taking care of your, you know, fellow downtrodden humans too. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, and he would eventually get involved in, uh, like you were talking about the evangelicism. Is that the word? Evangelicism. Yeah. 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 yeah you're right. Uh, and he would fall into, uh, fall into the camp of the, the Pentecostals. Uh, and even more so there was, uh, a group of, I, I just call it, I guess, Pentecostal plus, which was the latter <laughs> rain movement. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was like they off, uh, they splintered off from the Pentecostal church because they were even more sort of out there than the Pentecostals were as far as like, hey, um, we get prophecies directly from God. Mm-hmm. We some of us have supernatural powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would use sort of sometimes good old fashioned uh, traveling show vaudeville medicine man style uh, stage magic to, you know, look like they knew what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty out there, but he found that that was a pretty good uh, audience for himself. And what he called, uh, I mean, he basically said, you know, through the manifested sons of God, which is a doctrine in the Latter Rain movement, mm-hmm. like, hey, God picks out certain special people that he gives, like, basically the powers of Jesus Christ, and I'm one of them. Right. Yeah, this this group of elites will prepare the world at end times for Jesus's return and they are essentially Jesus just divided up into different human forms and Jim Jones is like I'm one of those guys too. Check me out. So that was like a weird a weird way to go um but it was also sensible if you look at him from the lens of strictly a, a huckster who was taking advantage of people. Of right. course he's going to go into like I'm Jesus by the way. It's just it's just such a lazy way to take advantage of people. Yeah. And, you know, like he was able to do that because like most cult leaders, uh, he was very charismatic. Uh, He was also a strange person. Ed dug up this one story that I had never heard that at one point in his life, he was like, you know what? I'm not going to take place in a conversation with anyone unless I initiate it. So literally people would come up and address him and talk to him and he just wouldn't answer back. Yeah, if they were really persistent, it'd be like, I can't hear you. Right. <laughs> Very strange thing, but just sort of a, a example of what an odd duck he was. Uh, a lot of people did find him sort of creepy and off-putting, but he did have that charisma. You don't get cult followers unless you're a charismatic dude, and he he was that. He you know he had that jet black hair and sideburns. Uh, he had a sort of Elvisy look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well put. Yep. Which, by the way, is still a thing. Uh, I went to Memphis, which is, you know, where my mom grew up and where I used to go as a child. 
uh, with uh, my mom and Emily and Ruby. And there are still those dudes walking around Memphis that are like in their 70s now and have these big sideburns and pompadours, like these sort of Memphis mafia looking guys. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was like, oh, wow. Of course, Memphis still has those guys. For sure. Where where, where else are they going to go? What else are they going to do? Nothing. Yeah, That's Memphis. what they do. <laughs> That's what you can do in Memphis. Yeah. So anyway, he was one of those guys, uh, you know, later in life, he was very well known for wearing those um, steel rim sort of squarish. I guess they were sunglasses or were they also reading glasses? I think they were like early um, transitions lenses. It looks like almost (laughs) they were just constantly in the in-between state. (laughs) Well, listen, we could debate Jim Jones's uh, eye diagnosis all day long. I'm guessing he they were reading glasses because I I read an account of him looking over them at people oh. in the room. So it probably was reading glasses. Yeah, which is also an intimidating move, I think. For sure. I, I get also the impression that he was wearing those kind of in-between sunglasses because um, at some point in the 60s, he started taking drugs, maybe even earlier than that. But yeah. definitely by the 60s, he was taking speed um, and then later on like sedatives and quaaludes and stuff. And as the 70s started to wear on, he was really getting into those. So he probably needed those glasses on some days so that you couldn't see what his eyes looked like in the middle of the afternoon, you know? There's a lot of Elvis in this story, actually. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Should we take a break? For sure. All right. We'll be right back, everybody. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey, everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next-generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one-time fee, or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Squarespace. 
You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. All right. So uh, Jim Jones has been sort of involved in several different denominations and churches, worn out as welcome in most of them, and eventually is like, you know what, I'm going to start my own church, uh, which is step one, if you're going to form a cult. Actually, that's not true. There were plenty of cults without churches, but that was his route. And so he started the People's Temple in 1955 and was really successful with it. He had, uh, you know, no trouble recruiting members. And by the early 1960s, uh, he was so popular and he had such a following that he was able to continue his work uh, desegregating businesses and, you know, other, you know, this wasn't like a national movement. He kind of was one of those think local guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, in 1960, the mayor of Indianapolis said, all right, you're the director of our Human Rights Commission. Right. And um, like I said, he took that and ran with it and started to really kind of rack up more and more interest. And I'm not exactly clear on some of the documentaries you see about like his rise to power and influence. Um, The early stuff takes place in like a traditional church. It looks like a church. You can tell it's a church. It's just, you know, um, uh, what do they call it? I guess charismatic churches where people are like dancing and everything and clapping and he's healing people. Um, I'm not sure at what point it started. It could have been Indianapolis. It probably was. But he started to just say more and more like bizarre stuff over time. And one of the first bizarre things that he said that had a really big impact on the history of the people's temple was that um, there was going to be a thermonuclear war on July 15th, 1967. The bombs were going to drop, I think is how he put it. And he he apparently got the six and the seven transposed because what he meant was July 15th, 1976, the bombs were going to drop. (laughs) 
But he convinced his congregation or a lot of his congregation, I think at least 100 families from Indianapolis to move to rural North Northern California to basically set up a safe haven, a little kind of commune uh, for the people's temple. It was a it, it was his first really truly big um, show of power over right. other people's lives. Because just take, just think about it for a second. You you go to church right, and you um, go and you like listen to the sermon and everything, and you have probably like some friends at church or whatever, and then you come home and church is done for the week for a lot of people. Maybe you go one other day. That's about it. Wednesday. Imagine being so into church that you move your family across the country because your preacher is telling you there's going to be a thermonuclear war and we all need to go to Northern California. That takes a real level of like intuitness um, that uh, from congregants. And it was a real show of like faith and a test of faith for people. And he was very successful with it. And I think that did nothing but just embolden him further. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and by this time, we should point out, too, that he had started uh, quite a large family with Marceline uh, at her suggestion. And apparently he was super into it as well. Uh, she wanted to have a rainbow family. So they adopted quite a few kids of all different, you know, uh, nationalities and ethnicities. Uh, they had one Native American child. They adopted uh, several Korean kids, uh, a black child. Um, I believe one of his uh, adopted daughters was killed by a drunk driver in 59. Mm -hmm. And then they adopted her younger sister, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, is pretty amazing. Uh, and then they also had their sole biological child in 1959, uh, Stephen Gandhi Jones, right? Who uh, you would, if you look him up, you will see lots of. He's very active in his. You know, I was about to say uh, his father's legacy today, but you know, not obviously supporting his dad's legacy. But like he, you know, during the 2018 commemoration of the Jonestown uh, massacre, I guess or is it a massacre or just mass deaths? What would you even call that? I, it just depends on your perspective. But, yeah, I think you could get away calling it a massacre for sure. Yeah, but he led that uh, ceremony um, and also acknowledged that, you know, hey, listen, it's uh, a can of worms that I, I'm doing this to begin with. And people have things to say about me or, or don't agree with certain things I say, then, like, let's please have that conversation. But he's he's pretty vocal and, and public to this day. Yeah, he wasn't just a kid at the time, like toward the end of the People's Temple. He was the oh, head no, no. of the security force um, yeah. at the time when they were in Guyana, which we'll talk about soon. Um, yeah, he's in a really strange way, very brave for like showing his face in public as, you know, who he is. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing happened that's pretty key to the story. Uh, before he said, hey, everybody, let's move to California. Uh, he moved his just his family to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, because of this supposed impending nuclear disaster. And on the way there, he stopped in a country in South America called Guyana and just got a little taste of what life was like there. And that definitely planted a seed. So he's, uh, I believe, in 1964, he's planning this move a couple of hours north of San Francisco to Yukia, California. And at that point, he has already at least visited and preached in Guyana. Uh, right. That's a great setup. So he, when he gets to Brazil, he's basically like left and taken his family, like you said, to get away from thermonuclear war. But he's been like, but I, you guys, you know, 
you stay back here and and um, keep the keep the temple going. Yeah. And apparently there was no one there with his strength or charisma because um, the temple fell apart almost immediately or it started to, it threatened to. So just after even a, a couple of months, he had to go back and like get everything back in line and back in order uh, and ended up staying there, staying in California again for a while. Um, I don't, I guess for several more years, I think. Do you remember when it was he moved to Brazil at first? Uh, he moved to Brazil in 1963. Oh, okay. So, yeah, he came back. Um, he came back to Indianapolis, I guess is what it was. This would have been pre-California. Yeah, and in California, he found, you know, obviously Northern California, uh, he would find in the 1960s quite a few people in that area that were into his message of socialism. Right. Uh, pretty ripe for recruiting. And he would eventually move into San Francisco itself uh, and did pretty well there, like so well that he had a lot of followers who had a lot of and had a lot of sway over them. So local politicians started saying, hey, we need to get in line with this guy because he has a lot of influence at the voting booth. Like Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone were, uh, you know, like actively courting him. I think they named him or at least uh, the mayor named him chairman of the San Francisco's Housing Authority Commission. Yeah, because um, he he basically took credit for Moscone's um, uh win as mayor. He ver- he barely eked out a victory. And uh, Jim Jones had delivered um, several hundred, if not a couple thousand votes toward toward Moscone. And he said, you you owe me. And he became the, the public housing director or a member of the board. And apparently, um, just to kind of show his his influence and his clout and how great he was at those housing meetings, um, his followers would come, members of the People's Temple would come and cheer him on and clap and applaud, sometimes give him a standing ovation when he would give a little speech about public housing or something like that. It was really weird. But by this time in San Francisco, late 60s, early 70s, uh, pe- like people like that were a dime a dozen. Yeah. He was politically connected to, um, to people who were like, this guy, like you said, he can deliver the goods. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much so that whenever there was like unfavorable press about him, and we'll talk about some of the stuff they were, they were writing about him in a second. Um, he could actually get it stifled. He had the connections to be like, this article is going to come out on me. Can you make sure it doesn't come out? Um, so he could stifle like uh, dissent and oppress any outsiders who were criticizing him. So he was very powerful in San Francisco. And that was actually the reason he moved everybody to San Francisco. They went Indianapolis to Ukiah, California, Northern California. He figured out that was like Hicksville, USA, and he couldn't right. actually develop any real power down there. So he yeah. moved the whole thing to San Francisco, set up the People's Temple in San Francisco, and essentially had what was a um, a, um, a Pentecostal black congregation that so emphasized civil rights that they were just um, also bringing in tons of liberal uh younger middle-class white people too who wanted to support that cause who might have never been in a Pentecostal service in their life. And now all of a sudden they're like singing and clapping and dancing. So he had all these different streams of people that he was just bringing in, bringing in and eventually trapping in his church, the people's temple. Yeah. He's like, I, I love the grateful dead, but I've never handled a rattlesnake. This is amazing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, so things are also, you know, as this is going along, things are just becoming more and more culty. It was sort of a slow burn 
toward, you know, fully fledged cult. Uh, but by this time, he was, you know, right out of the playbook. He was, and we have a, you know, a lot of cult uh, content in our history. Mm-hmm. One on cults, mm-hmm. one on deprogramming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we cover some other cults as well. Yeah, specifically, I feel like we have surely, but I we can't to bring have. it mo- into mind. I mean, Manson, of course. Oh, thank you. But he is uh, right out of the cult leader playbook. He's starting to isolate members from friends and family. He's starting to say, you know, when you join my church, you got to turn over all your possessions Mm -hmm. to us. Uh, They ended up having a lot of money. I I saw at one point toward the end, they had like 11 million bucks in a bank account. Yeah, that's like 1978 money, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, And he started, you know, doing that thing where you're saying, you know, outside people are going to want to pull you out of here. They're going to want you to defect. Mm -hmm. Your family might even. Uh, He would spread lies about them. He would say he's getting prophecies that... If you disobeyed and tried to defect, then you would suffer some kind of tragedy. So things are getting more and more culty. And that's when, like you said, the, he started getting some press coverage, which, I mean, what's really like one of the most astounding things about all this is so many cults you hear about after the fact. But this was actively going on and being reported on by the press, like while it was happening. Yeah, because he was getting, like, wild and bizarre and abusive enough toward his congregation that he was – he there were defectors. There were people who were like, what the – what is this? I'm getting yeah. out of here. And they would go start to talk publicly about this. But, yeah, he had enough clout to, like, get any real, real unfavorable coverage or any widespread unfavorable coverage stamped out. But one of the things you mentioned that I think – um he really started to ratchet up around this time was um, isolating his congregation by creating a us versus them mentality yeah, and creating a siege mentality among the people who were members of the people's temple, especially the hardest core members that the, the U S government wanted them shut down. People were spreading lies about them. Like if an article did get out, he could point to how this is like lies and propaganda against the people's temple and use it as evidence about how there really was was a siege. And at some point, the people's temple in San Francisco actually burned down. I saw that they think it was white supremacists. Jim Jones blamed it on the Nation of Islam. Somebody burned the temple down and all that did was feed that paranoid sensibility that just isolated the members of the the People's Temple even further and pushed them even closer toward Jim Jones, who just used stuff like that to his advantage at every turn. Yeah, he was also, uh, like, things got a little more um, violent and militaristic. Uh, it, you know, he, he got his innermost circle together and named them the Planning Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were his sort of internal security team. And things, you know, he would start saying, okay, uh, you congregants have to have sex with each other. You congregants are getting married to one another. Uh, There were starvation diets. There was forced labor. Uh, Sometimes if they, you know, if a congregation member stepped out of line, they might be uh, stripped and marched around in front of the other temple members. So things are full on swinging cult at this point. When he is uh, being written about in the press and, like you said, getting most of it stamped out. Uh, but something happened in 1973 that, like, where the walls really started to close in on him. Mm-hmm. And that was a, uh, I mean, I guess sort of a sting operation. He was bisexual. Uh, that was not out. And, in fact, later on in, uh, like, sort of the, the, not the last days, but sort of while he was 
in Guyana mm-hmm. and living there, which we'll get to, he, he told all the congregation, you are all homosexual and I'm the only heterosexual here. Uh, so he made a big deal about that, but he was definitely bisexual because he would uh, abuse both uh, men and women within the temple. Uh, some accusations that they were underage, of course. And in late 1973, in December, he was at a movie theater in Los Angeles and an undercover cop. Uh, I read the police report. Apparently, Jones like signaled to him like, hey, meet me up in the balcony. Mm-hmm. And the cop instead went to the bathroom and motioned for him to come in there. And when he got to the bathroom, uh, Jim Jones pulled his pants down and started to masturbate in front of him. Uh, the cop left and had his uh, partner come in there and arrest him. And he got out of it. He apparently, I didn't see this anywhere, but Ed said that he found that um, his defense was that he was jumping up and down, uh, massaging his prostate, which was hurting him at the time. Yeah, it, he had a doctor's letter, dude. I also saw that he um, he just it, it, he used his political connections to get him out of it. Well, it's hard to tell what happened because the uh, the judge and I don't know. This seems weird. I, maybe that kind of thing happened a lot, though. Uh, the judge ordered the arrest records destroyed, and then the file was sealed. So I don't think a lot of people really know exactly why he was released. But he he had a a, a doctor's note, and the doctor went to bat for him and said, "Yeah, I mean, this is what it might look like when he's trying to to work up a urination in the bathroom." Right. Just really, just stay with me here, it said in the note. Right. <laughs> so that was a big turning point. Like you said, that was December of 1973. And um, Jim Jones started to get the message that his, the direction he was taking his congregation in was too bizarre for San Francisco. Maybe even too bizarre for the United States. Yeah. And he remembered um, Guyana at the time and um, sent some people down there to start scouting out and setting up a, a compound, a place, uh, I guess, an additional place for the People's Temple um, outside of the the oversight of the United States government and the United States press and all that. Um, and while they were off doing that, there was, there was something he did back in San Francisco that was enormously important. Um, and I say maybe we take a break and we'll come back and talk about it. Ooh, our first cliffhanger of the year. <laughs> That's right. We'll be right back. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! 
You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey, friends. As every parent knows, kids seem to be everywhere all at once, and it's really tough for even the most watchful moms and dads to protect their little ones from every single thing. Yeah, Duracell understands this, and that's why they're deeply committed to lithium coin battery safety. Lithium coin batteries power a bunch of important things around people's homes, including things young children may have access to. So Duracell not only educates parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of lithium coin battery safety, they also make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Even Duracell's packaging is child secure and designed to avoid accidental opening. Because they believe their products should provide more than just power. They should also provide peace of mind. You can learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 1974, he uh, sent some people down to Guyana, Guyana, to start setting up a, a new compound for the People's Temple down there. Socialist country, by the way, at the time. Yeah, which makes sense because by this time, um, Jim Jones has been identifying himself to his congregation as their socialist god. Over time, he slowly hmm. stripped away the concept that that Jesus is God or that he was Jesus and replaced himself to his followers as God. Like they started toward the end following him as God. They called him father. They called him dad. He was he was very much like their religious figure on earth, M- yeah. way more than just their reverend or their pastor or even the head of their cult. Like he was a supernatural religious figure in the most ardent of believers' eyes. So, he looked like Elvis. Exactly. So – um. He tries something with them that proved to be the the first of a couple of attempts or a couple of practice runs 
for what happened in Guyana. In San Francisco at the People's Temple, um, he handed out cups and he said, hey, I know we all steer clear of alcohol, everybody but me, um, right. but our, our, one of our vineyards has produced a really great wine and I want everybody to try it. So he passed out cups, made sure everybody tried the wine, he circulated among everyone as they were drinking it. And then after everyone had finished, he went back to the pulpit and he said, that was poisoned. You're all going to die in about the next 10 minutes or something. We're all going to die together. And he, he gauged their reaction. And apparently the reaction was a combination between stunned silence and mm-hmm. uh, acquiescence. Like, okay, that there wasn't people screaming. People weren't running for the doors. Nobody tried to um, beat him up or kill him. It was just he, he, he saw... They, they would actually do this, like, I think, if I actually asked them to do it and didn't just trick them into it. And he said, I'm, uh, this is all just a test of your loyalty. You all passed way to go. But that was not the only time that he did that to those poor people. Yeah, he started, well, let's back up a sec, because in 74 is when about 50 temple members went to Guyana to start setting it up. And they did that for about three years. And a magazine article came out in New West Magazine in 1977 that really exposed him mm-hmm. for what he was. And he was like, okay, like the jig is up. I have to get out of here now. So he moved uh, with his family to Guyana. And apparently the facilities could only support about 200 people. Uh, in May of 77, 600 more came. And then the ensuing months, another 400 people came. A lot of these were kids. Uh, a lot of these people were elderly or infirmed. And so there weren't enough people there to work and sustain it, really. Uh, they worked 12 hours a day, the people that could work. Mm-hmm. It was brutal. Uh, when they weren't working, they were listening to his sermons and his lectures. They were watching Russian communist propaganda films. And abuse allegations started to come out, and he got super paranoid. And that's when he started leading more and more of those dry runs. He called them white nights Mm -hmm. where he would have these trial runs for mass suicide. Uh, Sometimes they would meet in the pavilion and and his his security team would like fire guns from the jungle over their heads. Uh, One of them lasted for six days. It was called the six-day siege. And they were just all these dry runs for killing themselves. And I think they just routinely got used to it. Yeah. But every time it was just a test of their loyalty. It was a drill to practice for when the United States military inevitably invaded because that siege mentality had gotten even more paranoid. Apparently, he was just off his rocker on speed, um, would give hours and hours and hours long marathon sermons into the night. And you mentioned that um, that the bulk of the building of Jonestown fell on the shoulders of like a not like a minority, but far fewer people than there were to support. Yeah. And so those people were working day and night and eating uh, black um, black eyed peas and rice and mm-hmm. bananas. And um, it's kind of nice. It is nice, but if that's all you're eating and you're sure. working hard labor hours and hours a day, and then when you get off of hard labor, you go sit. And listen to an hours long sermon till two a.m. Yeah. or no three a.m. Then you have to get up at five or six the next morning and start all over again. Even the people who who were at Jonestown who weren't like I would kill myself for Jim Jones believers were too mm-hmm. tired and sleep deprived 
to give any kind of problems to Jim Jones in the direction he was taking everybody. So yeah. that was actually like part of the the plan, apparently, or at the very least, it was a happy byproduct for Jim Jones that the people were either totally committed to him or they were so overworked and under uh, um, underslept that they just couldn't put up any kind of protest. Yeah, for sure. Um, so things are happening in Guyana at Jonestown. Uh, finally, all uh, you know, press is still writing about this stuff back in the states. And in late 1978, uh, a California congressman named Leo Ryan, who had been following this story, and this is one of the more remarkable parts of this whole story, mm-hmm. a congressman flew to Guyana with a, a small group, like some NBC camera people and reporters and journalists and stuff, on a fact-finding mission. They actually went to the camp at Jonestown and met in the pavilion. Uh, while they were there, a Temple member named Vernon Gosney uh, passed a note to a reporter that was meant for Leo Ryan that said, please help me and my wife leave. Uh, they got out of there and took 15 Temple members that were defecting with them. And Jim Jones was like, they can go. It's fine. People are free to go if they want to. Uh, there was some brief incident with Ryan where he was held at knife point or there was an attempted stabbing. Things got pretty chaotic and they got the heck out of there and went to this airstrip while they were waiting on their couple of planes to get ready. Mm-hmm. And the Red Brigade, which was the new name of his security team by this point, who were really, really militaristic at this point, showed up at the airfield and just opened fire on them. Yeah, and just to kind of rewind for one second, when when Leo Ryan showed up, he was showing up to investigate this cult that he'd heard nothing but bad things about. But his reception and like the banquet that was thrown for him and the music that was played and the, the services that he witnessed were so enthusiastic and uh, upbeat that he actually gave a speech to them th- saying, like, it's very clear that for most of you, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And the place just erupts and, like, cheers. They've, like, won this o- this guy over. Like, maybe they'll be left alone from now on. And it was, like, a jubilant. You can tell um, Congressman Ryan is, like, into it, too. He's like, this is great. Um, and it, it goes from that to all of a sudden the truth of the matter is just kind of exposed like a, a little rotten core of an apple that you thought was just totally bright and shiny. And it must have been stomach turning to have your perceptions just turned on on end like that when that note was handed to that cameraman. Yeah. And Leo Ryan was like, oh, these people are totally brainwashed and I was yeah. almost duped. And then it became tense. Then he was held at knife point, And then... He ended up dying on that on that airstrip. Yeah. Oh, actually, we did one on brainwashing, too. We totally did. We also did one on roundabouts, people who like roundabouts. Right. <laughs> so, uh, remarkably, part of this exists on film. Uh, the NBC camera person, Bob Brown, was filming some B-roll there when this shootout breaks out. Uh, and it wasn't much uh, because he actually was shot and killed and his camera was shot up as well. Uh, so he only had a few seconds of this attack. But uh, Ryan was killed. Um, that cameraman, Bob Brown, was killed. NBC reporter Don Harris was killed. There was a photographer from the Examiner in San Francisco named Greg Robinson that was killed. And one of the defectors, uh, Patricia Parks, was killed. And in the second airplane, this is a little Cessna, so there weren't even that many people on it. Mm-hmm. There was a, a defector there that was 
you know, pretending to defect, pulls out a gun inside that tiny plane and opens fire, mm-hmm. somehow doesn't kill anyone. He wounds three of them. Mm-hmm. And the people that survive, like, just, you know, booked it into the jungle. And it is, uh, I mean, this is the beginning of a very quick end. Yeah, two of the people who were attacked on the airstrip survived by pretending they were dead. Jackie Spear, who was Leo Ryan's assistant, and Steve Sung, who was a sound guy, I think, for NBC, they pretended they were dead. And I think Jackie Spear said she was shot point blank. Like, they came up to make sure she was dead and didn't manage to kill her. Um, I read, Chuck, this is really important. I read that they laid there, that Jackie Spear reported laying there for 22 hours before oh. help came. Okay? So she's laying there pretending she's dead on the tarmac for 22 hours. Uh, and just put that in your in your um, bonnet and save it for later. Yeah, okay? absolutely. 22 hours after the attack, help finally came for Jackie Spears. Yeah. Uh, back at the temple, um, Jim Jones, he knows this is it. Like, the, the walls have fully closed in. They've committed multiple murders here. And he knows there's no way out. So he's like, the military is going to be coming for us, uh, the U.S. military. Uh, revolutionary suicide is the only way out. And there is a recording uh, that's very disturbing. I mean, big trigger warnings. I'm not going to get too involved in it. Uh, it's called the death tape. Mm-hmm. But you can listen to the revolutionary suicide uh, process unfold on this tape. Um, did you listen to it? Yeah, I listened to the whole thing. I had to scrub through some of it because it's really hard to listen mm-hmm. to. Uh, there are parts where people are are standing up and, and saying, no, this is not what we want. Yeah. There are people that are just unsure. There are – and this is – very triggering, obviously, but there were the the sounds of uh, children crying all over the place in the background and a woman saying uh, they're not in pain. It's just a, a bitter taste in their mouth. No one's feeling any pain. And it's just incredibly disturbing and, and remarkable that this exists uh, in the world and that you can listen to this. Um, but then, you know, at like the 42 minute mark, it just goes quiet yeah. and it's haunting. Yeah, I think. From what I understand, it's really easy to take it like that's the end of Jonestown. But I believe what the death tape um, covers is the the beginning of the whole thing. Yeah. The, the killing of the children. That's why you're hearing mm-hmm. the children screaming. They're dying from having being forced to drink cyanide. And um, as, they, as it gets quiet, that's because the kids have died. Um, it's just as eerie. That doesn't make it any less eerie. But apparently after that the tape runs out is when the adults really started drinking because at the end he's like, bring in the, bring in the, the vat with, yeah. with the flavor aid in it um, so that the adults can start drinking. That's toward the end of the tape. But you mentioned somebody standing up, a woman named Christine Miller was yep. the sole person mm-hmm. who challenged Jim Jones directly. She went to the mic and was like, yeah. isn't there, isn't there any other way? Like you told us Soviet union would take us. Is it too late for that? Um, yeah. You know, as long I think she said, as long as there's life, there's hope. Like we we shouldn't do this. And then she also said, I think the children would want to live. They should be able to live. Yeah. And she ended up getting shouted down by other other members. But she tried really hard. And apparently, she was one of the people who was found at Jonestown later on uh, with a puncture mark in her arm, and that she was probably killed that she was murdered she didn't she didn't drink the kool-aid or the flavor aid herself she um was probably injected with cyanide that's 
almost certainly how she died. But she yeah. was extremely brave for trying to save all those people. And it was it was useless because Jim Jones knew there was no other way out for him. He was going to kill himself. And that he couldn't very well leave these people alive without him. And he specifically says, you're, you're going to do this. You want to do this. There's no life without me. And I'm going to die. So we all need to die together. And he's encouraging them outright, encouraging them, Chuck, on this tape. You can hear him, how he gets them to take their own lives and kill their own children. It's like that's it went from like bleak research to just like, I can't believe yeah. this actually happened. Like my brain kept like repelling from wrapping itself around it. Yeah, it it was like I said, I couldn't even listen to it all the way through. I had to kind of just skip ahead. But um, you did mention, and this is, you know, this is a fact that most people know by now because uh, usually that guy at every party likes to point out <laughs> that it was not actually Kool-Aid. Uh, drink the Kool-Aid has become a euphemism, but it was grape flavor aid, in fact. Mm -hmm. And it had a bunch of stuff in it. It had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different uh, you know, various sedatives and antipsychotics, and there was one malaria medication in there for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, Valium, but cyanide was um, ultimately what you know did everyone in. Mm -hmm. uh, and like you said, they killed the children first by uh, putting it in a syringe and and shooting it in their mouth, and then um, other people took it willingly. And then, like you said, in the case of Christine Miller that she was injected um, like other people were, uh, obviously against her will. And uh, a lot of people thought it was another white night rehearsal, so they went along with it, maybe not knowing that they were really going to die. Mm -hmm. And in the end, uh, 918 people died in Guyana, um, 907 from the poisoning. Uh, then Annie Moore and Jim Jones uh, either killed themselves with their own gun or had uh, one of the Red Brigade do it. Uh, three, I'm sorry, 276 of these, uh, victims were kids. And then there were people that went out into the jungle. Uh, other people died later. Uh, there was this really sort of sad, bizarre story of, uh, this woman named Sharon Amos, who was a temple member who was in Georgetown, uh, Guyana, who got the message that you need to kill yourself. And so she killed her two young kids and then her third, her 21 year old daughter, uh, Leanne Harris, apparently they uh, looked at each other and either slit each other's throats or their own throats. Uh, there were two other people in the bathroom, a 10-year-old named Stephanie Brown and a 43-year-old man named Charles uh, Beekman. Uh, he was charged with her attempted murder because he cut her, but he told her, hey, I have to. Apparently, he was trying to help her live, mm -hmm. and he said, I have to cut you to make it look real. Uh, and he got off on five years because she corroborated that story in court. So he didn't, you know, get a, a full conviction. Yeah. There's a lot of really weird, bizarre stories about, you know, what people did when faced with this, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the things from that tape, one more thing about the tape that really got me was that somebody, like people were testifying, people were coming up and, and getting the mic and thanking dad, thanking Jim Jones for one guy goes, thank you, you know, dad, for giving me life. And then, you know, as an afterthought, he's like, and, and death, like they yeah. were thanking him for this. Right. So, um, one person came up to the mic and said, all you people, 
along the wall crying over there. This is not a time to be sad. This is, this is something to be happy for. And the fact that there were people crying along the wall, um, to me, those were the people who, who knew they didn't have any way out. Not yeah. because, you know, the U.S. military was coming to kill everyone and torture the children, but because they, the Jim Jones's people were not going to let them leave. It was either try to get away and be killed, shot, or drink the Kool-Aid yourself and be part of the revolutionary suicide. And they were scared to death. They didn't want to die. They were literally grieving their own death right yeah. before they died. And that was the choice. Like, you, you, couldn't, you weren't allowed to leave. You had to drink the, the flavor aid. But a couple of people did get away, uh, these survivors who literally escaped the tent that the people were, were killing themselves in and got away and, and snuck off into the jungle. Uh, and those people are like really important sources of information for what happened because they saw people dying. They, they yeah. didn't leave right before. They left like during this whole thing at the height of it. Um, and they came back and they did all sorts of terrible things. They had to um, identify bodies. They had to um, they had to explain what was going on. They they one guy is uh, named Charles Clayton. He was uh, a a really uh, important source for a lot of the documentaries you'll see. Um, he slipped away and and got away unnoticed. Um, and that whole identifying the bodies thing, I know I, I sound like I'm rambling, but there's just so much to talk about. But we probably should should go to that part about the aftermath because. I mentioned that um, Jackie Spears was alone on the airstrip a couple miles away from Jonestown for 22 hours. And they, the people of Jonestown killed themselves uh, within an hour and a half, maybe two hours of um, the assassination of Leo Ryan and, and those people. So that meant that the, it was just this totally quiet, eerie village of the dead for a good 20 hours before any outsiders came in and saw what had happened. Terrible. Can you imagine? It was horrifying. Yeah. Still is. So um, one, one more kind of like little add on that was the worst civilian casualty um, of American civilians uh, in history. And it's remained that way until nine 11. Um, but the the first responders who came, who had who were responsible for getting these Americans and their bodies back home so that their families could claim them, um, over the course of like a terrible week in the heat, in the storms and all that, they um, were largely from the Air Force, and the Air Force conducted a study on how that experience impacted them, and it turned out to be the first study of how something like that, how first responders are affected by the things they see and have to do from, you know, mass casualty events in history. And it really kind of created that whole um, field of study, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah. Something else. Um, you got anything else? Uh, yeah, there's one more odd little fact that you dug up. That is fairly remarkable uh, because the Congress person, Ryan, who was sadly killed that day, didn't his daughter end up in a cult? Not just a cult. The cult that was featured in Wild Wild Country, that Netflix documentary, she was oh. a member of that cult and ended up being married by that guru in the ranch in Oregon a couple of years after her father died. And they actually had a bottle of champagne that said the guru, I can't remember the guru's name, 
can turn even grape Kool-Aid into into wine. Wow. So they even made a joke about it at the wedding. Yeah. It's nuts, man. I just thought that I couldn't believe it. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic nugget to end on. Thanks a lot. Well, since Chuck said that was a fantastic nugget, of course, everybody, that means it's time for listener mail. All right. This is about the Christian heavy metal band Striper. Of course, what a better way to finish out this episode. (laughs) Uh, Hey, guys, grew up in the middle of the Canadian prairies in the 70s and 80s and was 14 when Striper's Soldiers Under Command came out and 15 when To Hell with the Devil (laughs) hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, On This Rock was built much of who I still am. I learned how to play drums along with Robert Sweet, but unlike Chuck, never had the opportunity to see them live as they rarely played Canada. Uh, They broke up in the early 90s, and uh, that I thought was that. Even though they got back together in 2005, I never managed to catch them live the few times they snuck across the border. Uh, Until that is, this summer, when I was down in Vancouver visiting the in-laws and they were playing Seattle, and I drove the three hours to see them. Uh, It was an amazing show. They're no longer playing the giant stadiums, of course, but I don't know if they ever played giant stadiums. Uh, But being able to stand 10 feet from guitarist Oz Fox, who can still shred after all these years, was an amazing experience. They still got all the hair, and vocalist Michael Sweet can still hit those high notes, though not as many as he used to. But after 40 years, they are very, very good at making music. Awesome. Uh, They're they're doing an acoustic tour uh, this year, 2024, uh, called to hell with the amps, <laughs> uh, and they're kicking off, uh, kicking it off down in Georgia, playing uh, Mad Life in Woodstock. I haven't heard of that venue, uh, and this is a May 30th, and I bet Chuck would have a hell of a time. Who knows? They might even play a couple of songs he recognizes. That is from Trent. You gonna go? And I don't know. Only if you go with me. Oh boy, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> we'll see. We'll talk about it offline. So no, we're not going. <laughs> That was Trent, huh? That's Trent. Thanks a lot, Trent. That was a great email. Appreciate the update on Striper. Uh, and if you have one on the guy who did uh, Life is a Highway, who turns out to be Tom Cochran. Uh-huh. I don't remember <laughs> if you said that in the episode or not. We would appreciate I that, don't know. too. Right? I would. If you want to be like Trent, you can get in touch with us at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.